Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Sebastian Truhl, your host, and today I am talking to Michael Diamond about his new book, Masculinity and His Discontents, The Male Psyche and the Inherent Tensions of Maturing Manhood, which was published by Rutledge in 2021. Michael Diamond is a training and supervising analyst at the Los Angeles Institute and Society for Psychoanalytic Studies. His major publications, and there are very many in multiple fields of psychoanalytic interest, are on technique and analytic mindedness, masculinity, femininity, and gender theory, fathering and the paternal function, trauma and dissociation, hypnosis and altered states, and group processes and social action. He's written and co-edited five books, including the one we will talk about today. In addition, his forthcoming book, Ruptures in the American Psyche and the Appeal of Trumpism, a plea for containment of a society in peril, will be published this spring by Phoenix Publishing. And three earlier books include The Second Century of Psychoanalysis, Evolving Perspectives on Therapeutic Action, My Father Before Me, How Fathers and Sons Influence Each Other Throughout Their Lives, and Becoming a Father, Contemporary Social, Developmental, and Clinical Perspectives. He's the honored recipient of numerous awards for his teaching, writing, and clinical contributions, and is in full-time clinical practice in Los Angeles, California, where he also remains active in teaching, supervising, and writing. Michael Diamond has been a source of inspiration to me through his sophisticated clinical studies of masculinity, and I'm very happy and honored that he has agreed to talk with me today. Welcome to the program, Michael. Thank you, Sebastian. It's a privilege and honor to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Well, thanks very much for joining. And um, as I, I just said, and uh, as the audience will have heard from the introduction, you've been um, you know, dealing with masculinity uh, and psychoanalysis for pretty much all your professional life. So the question we usually ask at the beginning of of, um, these interviews, 
uh, what motivated you to write this book it could probably be extended to you know um, I guess your professional life in general what what drew you to um, masculinity as a field of psychoanalytic study mm -hmm. well I, I think two things uh, one is uh, feeling that there was kind of a um, a limited understanding of uh, masculinity, despite Freud's brilliant uh, seminal contributions uh, to uh, to the to the masculine, um, it had a particular perspective, which I'm sure we'll we'll get to. That I think limited our ways of understanding masculinity. Um, secondly, of course, my own personal uh, growth and development as a as a man and a <laughs> a patriarchal culture, as most of us are in Western societies, and uh, what that means in terms of kind of codes of masculinity and uh, uh, needs to prove and so on, and how that impacts the psyche of boys growing up, whether they're uh, heterosexually oriented, bisexually, uh, homosexually oriented. Uh, the, the gender issue is, you know, so salient uh, for uh for the male across cultures. So those were two of the things. And, and then uh, I suppose there's a third element, which is when I became a father myself. Uh, and uh, our first uh, child was a, a girl and our second was a boy. And, uh, you know, it really, uh, I, I suppose, fueled me further along to try to understand uh, how we're raising our children to understand Uh, for my daughter, the opposite sex, and for my son, his own. Uh, so all of those played a part. Right, right. Uh, thanks for that, Michael. You just started by by talking about um, the the Freudian foundation, obviously, to our psychoanalytic understanding of masculinity. And I wanted to, uh, to jump right in uh, into your work, because what's sort of the core piece uh, in my mind of the book is a developmental, I guess you could call it developmental theory um, of men that uh, sort of revolves around uh, the psycho psychosexual positions, I guess you could almost describe them as, that you call the prephallic, the phallic, and the genital stages of male development. And as, as it is so central to your book, I was wondering if you'd like to, to describe to the audience uh, what, what those stages contain in your mind. Mm -hmm. And first of all, uh, although we all use the word stages in, in our field, uh, I think it probably is more accurate to talk about positions Um, be, because they take on different um, functions in the male psyche uh, throughout life, and they sort of oscillate. It's not as if we develop linearly, you know, and we we go through one stage and then we we're done with it, and uh, you know, get to the next stage and we're done with that. And so they stay there, and they play a very significant role throughout life. So part of my developmental orientation is that there's an oscillating. Uh, sense of positions within the male psyche uh, that kind of uh, uh, evolves from Freud's, uh, you know, notions of psychosexual stages. Uh, you know, he talked about the oral and the anal stage, which was were prephallic, and then he talked about the phallic stage, and eventually the uh, 
genital stage, which was thought to be uh, the, uh, the, the signpost to maturity. Um, so in my way of recasting some of it, uh, I do talk about the, the prephalic as an extremely important aspect uh, of the male psyche, uh, because the prephalic stage, which you know would be traditionally thought of as in, in the oral and uh, anal phases of development, uh, is the the infant boy and his relationship uh, to his other, who is the mother, of course, and the significance of his first other being different from him. Uh, a different, a different that's a difference that's only discovered, of course, down the road a bit, maybe when he's uh, one or two, uh, in terms of the, her sexual difference, um, and uh, that difference has a huge bearing on subsequent male development. But the prephalic uh, also encompasses what I call primor- the primordial uh, vulnerability of the the male child. Um, uh, of course, there's a primordial vulnerability for any child. It's uh, Freud's notion of the, uh, the initial helplessness, the radical helplessness, really, uh, of the infant to the mother. Uh, but for the boy, it has particular implications that um, won't be seen probably until uh, the boy can reflect backwards in some some form, or we can look backwards through operate coup uh, on what is made of this difference uh, from uh, sexual difference. But the primordial vulnerability is this, you know, again, this radical helplessness that the little boy child uh, has to experience right from the from the get go, and um, how that implicates. Uh, his further defensive operations, his ego ideals, and so on. So that, just in a very thumbnail way, is is the beginning, the prephalic. The phallic is, you know, kind of traditionally known in psychoanalysis through Freud's uh, brilliant uh, uh, extension of uh, his thinking into the phallic uh, aspect of the male. Um, And, of course, because his thinking was so uh, rooted in his own male subjectivity, the phallic has come to play a huge role in our understanding of psychoanalytic development, uh, often mistakenly, uh, uh, you know, in, in terms of theorizing uh, the female development, uh, which of course has been taken up by so many analysts uh, over the last 30, 40, 50 years in particular. Um, anyway, the, the phallic stage, of course, is the stage where the little boy uh, is discovering his penis, uh, H2, for example, and uh, you know he can operate with a kind of phallic narcissism where he's very terribly proud of his penis and displays it, uh, and uh, he can have a, of course a sense of omnipotence with that, still at that stage of development. Uh, and then eventually the thinking is that uh, the phallic stage, you know, traditional thinking, is that the phallic stage will uh, eventually be uh, uh, attenuated in some way, and a genital stage will begin to emerge, where no longer is the phallus so much the primary uh, uh, object in the world, but uh, the, the uh, little boy is beginning to uh, develop some sense of 
um, genital understanding. That is to say that uh, the genital will represent some way of connecting to another person uh, rather than simply penetrating as the phallus can represent the, the, the genital state represents some kind of connection genital to genital for example uh, that uh, will eventually become part of maturing development where there's a sense of the other and pleasuring the other can come into the, uh, the forefront of, of, of the orientation right thank thank you for for running us through it and i think i'd like to draw attention to the importance of of um i guess two things to be honest one one being um you're thinking of these developmental stages not so much as that developmental stages but actual positions that are sort of uh you know important all throughout the male's life Uh, and also, and and starting from from the idea of a specific male primordial vulnerability, I think that's very important, and and that's actually like you know sort of in a sense uh, turning Freud on its head, right? Because um, Freudian theorizing was so much about um, you know. Uh, the feminine or the or the female being less than being castrated yes exactly and and you sort of turned it around saying you know in in the prephallic stage which is very important as a foundation for a psychic life um in the après coup men experience themselves as less than this maternal or feminine other and a lot follows from there right in your thinking mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, thank you. That, 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 that very rich understanding of really what I'm trying to say. Uh, yeah, I mean, in the, the you know male subjectivity that Freud was subject to in 19th century, early 20th century Vienna, uh, you know, the, the phallus was the the primary object, and uh, those who lacked such, uh, in other words, women, women were. Uh, you know, missing something important. Uh, so it was a proto-masculine uh, kind of orientation. Uh, that was later challenged radically, very, uh, I think, uh, skillfully, by two uh, American uh, psychoanalysts actually based here in Los Angeles, uh, Robert Stoller and uh, Ralph Greenson, in the uh, 1950s uh, and early 1960s, where they really challenged the idea of this proto-masculine essence uh, that women were lacking. And they kind of turned it on its head and uh, said that, in fact, uh, there's a proto-feminine essence in the male because the male is mothered uh, by a woman. Uh, and that early mothering-infant relationship for the boy produces an early primary kind of identification with the mother that, according to the Greenson and Stoller thesis, uh, has to be repudiated in some way for the male to be fully developed as a male. That was what I've called, uh, come to call the, the second wave of psychoanalytic theorizing about masculinity in contrast to the first wave, the Freudian uh, notion where castration anxiety plays the primary role for Greenson and Stoller 
the the male then child has to somehow find a way to disidentify uh, from his femininity that was caused through his earliest identification with with the mother. And uh, so much of psychoanalytic theorizing in the second half of the 20th century sort of evolved from that idea uh, that, of course, was in some way uh, uh, latent in Freudian's thinking, because Freud, of course, felt that the father played an extremely important role in helping the boy to separate from the mother uh, the so-called uh, paternal function or symbolic function was, was inherent. Uh, it was uh, congenital, you might say, in the in the father uh, and the representation of the father. Lacan would talk about in the name of the father, and that was the separating idea that the father had uh, this terribly important role to break the tie of the little boy and the mother. Which still, by the way, is a very useful way of understanding uh, a father's function, but. In the Greenson and uh, Storer way of thinking about it, um, the, the the tie had to break an identification with the mother, uh, because any identification with the mother would be very problematic for the boy uh, if he was going to evolve in his sense of masculinity in the world. So that was the, the second wave of theorizing. I know which comes, little, uh, if, I, if I may jump in real quick, which comes to, with a very, very normative um, idea as well, right? I mean, um, positing masculinity as sort of like a, 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 a I guess, a, a gender identity that's purified of, of any, any traces of femininity or, or the maternal. It, yes, well put. And of course, we can already begin to see some of the problematic aspects of that normative way of thinking. Um, the, the most problematic, of course, is when it develops into a, a terror, a terror and fear of the feminine, right? Uh, in one, in oneself, which, which which is also sort of what you described, though, as um, by you know, sort of men being stuck. Uh, continually in this phallic position that can be a very defensive way of dealing with that sense of primordial vulnerability that we discussed. Exactly. And, uh, of course, one of the points that I make throughout the book, of course, is that uh, while the phallic position that can be very adaptive early in life, um, one getting stuck there where, where defensive uh, Felicity becomes sort of a rigid character trait is terribly uh, pathological for for the male and for often for the people around him. That's some of the cases that I describe in the book will, uh, I think, illustrate. So, uh, if I can pick up on the uh, the idea of the kind of a, a third wave of psychoanalytic uh, theorizing about male gender identity and masculinity. And by the way, uh, parenthetically. Uh, the whole, uh, whole idea of gender identity uh, needs to be uh, not conflated with the idea of uh, gender object choice. It has virtually nothing to do with whether a little boy or a male is homosexual or heterosexual or even transsexual uh, in, in objects uh, chosen. It, it has to do with this felt sense of... Um, one's own gender. And as I will 
illustrate in the book, and, and maybe we'll talk about it a little bit, uh, that felt sense of gender is in our culture typically drawn into a binary way of thinking, either you're male or you're female, either your felt sense of yourself is as a man or as a woman. Uh, that's being rigidly challenged these days. Uh, and uh, we know about the non-binary, uh, the non-cisgender, the uh, the trans uh, gender, that is really questioning the whole idea of um, thinking of oneself solely in the binary. So we'll perhaps pick that up in a moment. But I want to get back to uh, the, these waves of psychoanalytic theorizing. So uh, when I came along to try to think about what was going on, I was familiar with, of course, Freud's thinking about uh, about gender and masculinity. By the way, he never used the word gender. Uh, I don't think there is a word in German. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's it, we we actually use the word gender in in German as well. Yeah. Uh, uh, okay. So you do use the word. We do use that specific word, but it it doesn't have a translation as such. Oh, so there is no German word. No, gender. there's no German equivalent. We just have to yeah, use. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah. Right. At, at any rate, all right, so he he didn't use the word, uh, but subsequently, of course, uh, analysts will use the word. Uh, at any rate. Um, uh, being familiar with his thinking and then uh, becoming familiar with uh, Greenson's idea of the disidentification, what he called the disidentification hypothesis, the great challenge for the boy. Uh, I uh, felt, you know, again, as I indicated earlier, uh, something important was missing. Uh, and so I began to you know, work with my patients and with myself, of course, my own analysis, uh, and, uh, you know, read more thoroughly across cultures, particularly in the French uh, psychoanalytic way of thinking, and discovered that there really was um, a, a burgeoning, what I would now call a third wave of psychoanalytic thinking about masculinity, which had much more to do with the unconscious transmission of ideas about gender, right. uh, particularly the, the thinking of uh, Jean Laplanche and his idea of the basic anthropological situation where the uh, infant, male or female, is subject to the unconscious enigmatic messages that the mother is transmitting that she carries often unconscious, very unconsciously in their own psyche. Um, and right. that idea you know, really appealed to me because it, it felt like it was opening up something that's extremely important that also mirrors the um, observations we're able to make of uh, mother-infant interactions, which I think is another important dimension that you know, Freud didn't really have access to. And uh, Greenson and, uh, and Stoller were only at the early stages of a lot of uh, uh, infant uh, mother observational work that's often now a part of all psychoanalytic training. So uh, in, in that um, uh, arena of, of, of observation, we can see something that, that's happening between the mother and the infant, in this case, the infant boy that, uh, you know, so much more is, is, is being transmitted <laughs> than uh, we can 
uh, you know, manifestly observe, but we can, you know, see how the boy is reacting to the mother's moods. We can see how the, uh, the infant uh, is, is uh, taking in so much uh, and how, how the mother approaches the little boy child as opposed to the little girl child, for example. Uh, and what role that might play then in the unconscious sense that the boy child in this case is uh, formulating about himself as a person of the male gender, for example, right? vice versa for the female. So this third wave began to open up the whole idea of the mother's unconscious and the mother's relationship to her own father, for example, what Tom Ogden calls the father and the mother within the mother. Right. Um, so we began to also see that, you know, there's always a third <laughs> right in, in the midst. And of course, again, the French, Andre Green in particular, played a huge role in helping us to see that uh, the human psyche is kind of uh, configured triangularly. Uh, it, it, Freud had a, a real sense of that. That's the Oedipal idea from the get-go. But it, he didn't carry it back to the right. earlier stages. Uh, Melanie Klein tried to do it more so, uh, but she didn't quite take it as far back as uh, uh, in, in, in the psyche from the get-go. And that's what the French were starting to do. And, and uh, you know, research is kind of that's uh, going on, particularly in the... Uh, Scandinavian world, where we're looking at the inherent triangulations that uh, infants seem to be responding to. For example, if a parent is, um, one parent is there in the room and connecting to the infant, uh, and the other steps aside, the infant looks for the other often. And it's a, there's just a, 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 a unconscious need to uh, reconstitute the basic triangular structure. So uh, the idea, of course, then becomes that uh, maybe the actual father or the actual third may not be quite as important as the uh, unconscious in the mother third uh, that's right. also there. And, right. so, and that also helps us to begin to see how even some of the contemporary changes in parenting relationships um, can be very helpful for children. Uh, they aren't necessarily, as was once thought, to be inherently pathological if there's only one parent raising a child, for example, or if two gay parents are raising a child. Uh, we don't think that way anymore at all. But um, one of the ways that we can understand it more so is that there's always a third. If the main parent, let's say the mother who's raising a little boy child on her own, uh, carries a, an inherent sense of the third in her mind so that a part of her can hold, you might say, the, uh, the paternal function and help her little boy also uh, differentiate sufficiently from her to, to foray out into the world outside of her, outside of the mother orbit. So the, the third wave really is opening up a whole different ways of thinking and much more the, the unconscious element that's operative um, in the actual interactions between the mother and the child and the mother slash father with the child as well. 
that's giving you a little, again, another thumbnail sketch of kind of my way of thinking about these different waves and where we are. And of course, I would put myself in this third wave of, of, of thinking. It's it's very interesting to hear you, hear you talk about this. And as I was listening, I was just wondering, um, listening to you describe the second and the third wave of of theorizing masculinity in psychoanalysis, right? The second wave being this uh, this identification theory, pretty much, I guess. Uh, and then the third wave seemingly, I guess, opening up so much by introducing this inherent triangular structure. Um, it's it's a kind of a move from sort of like binary to a, a much more complicated and complex thinking of uh, identifications going back and forth, right? Between mother and father, mother and child, child and mother, child and father, and so on. It's, it's, it's a much more complicated and I guess also more fluid structure in, in a sense. And I was wondering if, if that doesn't sort of actually mirror uh, what you describe in, on the individual male level as the move from the phallic to the genital position. Mm -hmm. Oh, th yes, absolutely. Um, I think one of the uh, important uh, ways of thinking about the move from the phallic is it's, it moves from a more dyadic, uh, where the, in this case, again, the, the, the boy child carries a sense of uh, his penetrating an other. Right. Um, to uh, a, a much more triadic constellation where uh, there's not simply a penetration of the other, but uh, an effort to connect with the other to produce a third. Uh, I mean, it could be literally to produce a baby, of course, but uh, it's also to produce a third, which is a relationship uh, with, with the other. And then in moving to the genital position, uh, One is entering the world, uh, you know, sort of more authentically, uh, more fully of, of triangular uh, representations. Um, that's also the Oedipal. That's what, what Freud was really, I think, uh, ultimately getting to. Is that what, right. uh, in, in entering the Oedipal realm, uh, navigating it, you know, we, we live in a much more triangular, symbolic world. What, what I, I, I was just thinking, um, and what's really interesting to me is this complication of the notion of, of, of penetration, right? Because what seems to be happening um, in the move from the phallic to the genital position is that the penis or, or the phallus as a psychosexual representation does not merely stay this organ for penetration, but also, which is kind of counterintuitive, I guess, if you're steeped in this sort of thinking, an organ of receptivity, right? The, the penis is not just something where you, you know, you put something in the other, but also where you go inside the other to receive the other at the same time, mm -hmm. which I thought was, yes. was a very interesting complication of, of our notion of penetration. Yes. And that's, uh, I think, a very useful way to bring up the whole idea of uh, the limitations of phallic logic. Right. Because the phallic logic, which is which really, you're really uh, uh, alluding to, is, is, the, is the idea that um, 
the phallus is only an object for penetration to have, uh, you might say, to, to get. Uh, and masculinity then is equated, phallic masculinity is equated with, um, you know, being active uh, and uh, as opposed to passive, for example. And the whole idea of, and passivity, by the way, was, uh, I think, one of the the limitations of Freud's distinction between what he called the active and the passive, because he didn't he didn't accurately, I think, uh, fully elaborate what he meant by passive, because so much of what we mean by passive is receptive, right? And which is also active in itself, it's right? Very, it's, it's, exactly, it's, an, it's not only active, of, but it, yeah, yeah, it's active, and it also has an aggressive component. Um, you know, the the child sucking breasts uh, is receiving but is also aggressively taking in something right right you know? and uh, so in moving again from the phallic to the general to get back to your your question uh i i think we're also the little boy in making that move and the male who's able to again oscillate from a phallic orientation to a more genital orientation is uh rediscovering or uh, reanimating the inherent receptivity that the, uh, the infant male has from the, the very beginning. I mean, the only way the, the boy infant can survive is to be receptive to the mother's milk, for example, right. uh, to the, the air and the environment. <laughs> uh, you have to be able to take in uh, through the receptive. And, and that somehow that became equated with femininity is is a very mistaken notion. Uh, the, the male is a very receptive uh, species, <laughs> just, right. part of the, you know, just as the female is. And, um, you know, how that gets so confused is part of what I try to unravel more in, in, in the book. Uh, I'd, like to, I'd like to relate uh, that idea of, of male receptivity to um, two things, actually. One is... Um, your notion of fathering, I guess. What what does it mean then to be an involved father? Because it seems to change that traditional notion so much, right? Of like, you know, the male breadwinner who just comes in from the outside and and but doesn't really is not really receptive to what is going on with the children. And and then also maybe in in a second step to the male analyst, right? Because it it seems crucial to theorize uh, that notion of receptivity um, in the consulting room. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, we're really having a renaissance of the whole idea of the analyst receptivity. I think the the fascination. I don't know if it's as much so in, in Germany as it is here, but the fascination with beyond and uh, with the whole idea of reverie. Uh, which I think is such a crucial aspect of uh, psycho successful psychoanalytic technique uh, is, you know, a, a way of return to the analyst receptivity uh, and sort of allowing for the unbidden to emerge in the psyche of the analyst in order to better understand the patient. Uh, it, it, you know, in, in some uh, ways of thinking and a more binary way of thinking it would be the analyst relationship to his feminine 
uh, receptivity. Um, you know, what gets called feminine, more accurately, is actual, uh, what I consider proto-masculine essence, which is uh, as receptive as it is penetrating. Um, so indeed, it's a very, very important part. Now, there, there's a piece of your question I think I haven't responded to, though, at the point, and I wanted to get back to that. Yeah, I, I was I was wondering about, you know, the, the paternal, how, how, how do we think then about the paternal, or, or about fathering as, as an, as an, I guess, activity, um, if, if we take male receptivity into account? Sure, absolutely. Uh, so, and it, it's analogous in many ways to the male analyst position, because there's a lot of fathering and mothering within the fathering, <laughs> if you want right. to put it in those terms. Uh, I, I think of the, the father, the actual father, uh, the real flesh and bed blood father, as carrying certain uh, uh, positions, I guess you could say, or orientations for his little boy and little girl that are extremely important. Um, and uh, probably in, in short, one is um, the, you know, the, the well-known separating function or orientation where the, the father, as the third, breaks in to the infant child's relationship to the mother and offers a second object to identify with and be identified by uh, but also very significant and I suppose this is something that I've, I've highlighted more in my work because the separating function is, is well enough known from Freud's day uh, is the attracting function uh, the father also has to be an attractive object for the child to want to be identified with, and of course will be identified by. Uh, and that attracting function is usually the, the father is a, a loving, involved, uh, caring parent, and particularly if the father himself can live more fully in the genital uh, masculine position rather than you know just be the phallic. Uh, right. position uh, and in uh, maybe in a third um, functional way the father also serves uh, what I would like to think of as a kind of a watchful protective uh, object uh, who serves uh, to protect the uh, relationship of particularly the infant and the small child to the mother uh, you know kind of standing slightly outside the realm of the what Winnicott called the mother's maternal preoccupation with her infant and holds them together uh, in some way and protects uh, that bond and, and of course in that sense is protecting the child's early earliest development uh, and that can produce particular challenges for males particularly for those who uh, tend to be uh, a little bit more arrested in their development or fixated in a phallic position because um, they're needing to sort of be <laughs> the primary object for the, the mother becomes very threatened um, by the infant. And, you know, talk about one of the cases in, in, the, in the book where uh, one man was having tremendous difficulty sort of 
taking on uh, the fathering function because he felt so jealous of the mother's relationship with with the infant. And that can be an important challenge uh, for for a male and also an opportunity for growth development. The the particular male that I describe in the the book, you know, really develops through the analytic process uh, to be able to both identify with uh, the infant and uh, protect the mother-infant bond and eventually reclaim his wife uh, so that the infant can have a, a successful triangulated relationship with the mother and father together. Michael, I'd, I'd like to to push you a bit on this point about about fathering because um, I I was wondering. It seems to me that what you're trying to to theorize with the genital position is a fluidity. Uh, which makes it almost, I guess you could say, possible for men to, you know, embody the the whole, like the the penetrative logic, but also the receptive uh, logic, uh, sort of at the same time. But then, when it comes to fathering, you seem to make a very distinct um, differentiation between the role of the the actual mother and the actual father uh, and I, i i get what you're where you what you're saying about the attracting function um of the father but he still seems to be somewhat removed from the intense dyadic life that you ascribe to baby with mother why and 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 I, to my mind my question would be why Does it seem, maybe it's it, it's also just me uh, and, and, and it seems to, to me like that from reading the book, but uh, to me it seems like, or, or the question seems to be, why is the father somewhat removed still from, from this intense dyadic involvement with the baby? Because the baby's born out of the mother. Uh, and I mean, I, we're also speaking about very traditional right. uh, parenting arrangements right now. So I, I think we have to really open up the conversation to talk about some real alternatives can be in play. But in a traditional relationship where the mother uh, births the child and stays involved with the child, uh, there still is a much more primary, earliest connection with the mother as the first object. Uh, and uh, that can certainly change. Um, the, the surrogate mother can be used and uh-huh, the uh-huh. Uh, secondary mother can come into place or uh, the mothering object can actually be a male. Uh, two males can adopt uh, or ha- have a surrogate uh, involved and the, the mothering function. And that's, I think, is important to make a distinction here because right. we're talking about functions, not necessarily the actual or even gendered individual. Uh, so, you know, I, I hope that opens up uh, the conversation a little bit about uh, what your concern is, is that, you know, traditionally that the father is um, is the second other and is slightly removed from that earliest dyadic relationship. Uh, that doesn't mean the, the mother can't go off, the actual mother can't go off and take on a more active role in the world and the father couldn't be a 
a father who stays home and raises the child, for example. And that dyadic connection can become uh, very crucial and, and uh, can kind of, in some way, um, not, I wouldn't say replace, but sit alongside the earliest dyadic connection. And, and then it may be that the mother's coming home Will, will serve the paternal function and help that infant who's being primarily uh, quote mothered by the by the actual father uh, to s- differentiate sufficiently. That uh-huh. could uh-huh. certainly be the case. So that there are a lot of arrangements that you know can take place where the functions can be served by one in a different someone in a different sex or gender than traditionally assumed. I guess my question to to follow from that would be, um, do do bodies matter? Because I mean, you're you're using this very like psychosexual language, right? Of of prephallic, phallic, and genital uh, realm, um, and I'm I'm just wondering, like, there, there seems to be a tension in all of psychoanalytic theorizing that kind of takes gender into account because. I mean, let's be honest, a lot of uh, psychoanalytic theorizing still doesn't. Um, but but if it does, there's there's this tension of our very distinct focus on the body, but then also being open to, you know, like, um, I guess, contemporary thinking about gender that sort of has a tendency to, you know, not not always, but has a tendency to do away with the body. And we're sort of stuck uncomfortably between those poles sometimes, it mm-hmm. feels like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I don't think that that tension's ever going to go away. Right. <laughs> uh, right. I, I think that's part of what what's inherent in even talking about gender. It's, you know, for many years and some subcultures of psychoanalytic thinking, gender doesn't belong to psychoanalysis. Uh, you know, uh, I heard that said from colleagues who, who from the British in the world where that's just not part of it. Uh, gender is a social construction and so on. I don't think that's a, uh, accurate. I don't think that gets to the essence. But I think, you know, when we start to talk about gender, uh, the, the, the role of the body becomes very very important and uh, the, there's an inherent uh, discrepancy or uh, realm of conflict or tension between the socio-cultural and uh, biological bodily aspects so to get back to I think what your question sort of leads me to think about is the the, the, the fact of the matter being that at least still today, <laughs> there'll be there'll be changes, I'm sure, with technology. But at least today, a, a, a boy child is born out of a female body, and right. that bodily distinction between his body and mama's body uh, will continue to play a, a tremendous role in his psyche. Uh, that stays that stays there and some of the bodily differences you know show up even in in the earliest impact of why i believe that the boy uh has a particular uh uh, disruption 
uh, as he discovers the, the, the difference between his body and the mother's body when he's a little older and then in the outbreak coup of all that. Uh, right. And there also is some evidence that, you know, comes from uh, uh, neuroscience that I think is, is very useful for us to pay attention to. And maybe in years to come, we'll have a better idea of how it all fits together. But the, the, the boy is uh, vulnerability to uh, the mother and the mother's uh, psychosoma uh, seems to be much more um, radical than that of the little girl. So, for example, if the mother is having the um, just he has the boy has a slower pace of neurobiological development. You know, may have something to do with testosterone in utero. Uh, it, it's hard to it's hard to know exactly what that's about. Um, but from the from the get go, uh, little girls seem to show infant girls seem to show greater interhemispheric uh, connectivity. Um, uh, young boys are uh, less mature cognitively and emotionally than are little girls. But there's a, in other words, there's a developmental asymmetry. Uh, and the boy's developmental timetable is, is, is much slower. Uh, right. So the boy is more in need of the mother to do uh, regulating of the boy uh, and, and because the boy's capacity for self-regulation seems to be uh, less so than that of the little girl. So attachment failures in the mother-infant relationship uh, you know, are more profoundly uh, felt by little boys. Um, they're more vulnerable to maternal psychopathology, research shows. Uh, right. And then, of course, they're going to come into a culture, for the most part, in westernized cultures, where any cross-gendered behavior uh, is going to be subject to more radical taboos for the little boy than the little girl. So the little boy is going to be uh, subject to uh, a greater sense of shame when he behaves in ways that seem to be uh, cross-gendered, you know, seem to be categorized or thought about within the binary as as more feminine. So boys are terribly shamed in the, in the so-called boy code in, in growing uh, little boys. The code is often don't behave like girls uh, in right. any way. Don't show any sissy traits uh, or anything that can be make you feel like you're too close to mama. Don't and I guess it's something that, that also really plays out in father-son relationships, right? Or tends to play out in those relationships. Uh, you know, the, the loss the loss of the homoerotic um, uh, component of, of relating very early on in life. Like how many fathers still really like, you know, touch their sons after a certain age. That's like, uh, you know... That's almost Im impossible in some cultures and some communities, I guess. Uh, yeah, 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 exactly. You know, and again, that homophobia, homophobia, you know, is highly tied to this, uh, you know, this whole idea of repudiating the feminine because homosexual uh, activity is is thought of as somehow feminine. Uh, it, uh, of course, we know in, uh, 
from gay patients and so on, that uh, it, it, it was a very profoundly phallic aspect to uh, homosexual relationships, just as there is to heterosexual relationships. And there's a profoundly, quote, um, uh, you know, masculine and uh, as well as receptive uh, aspect to, to these relationships. Um, so again, it, it just, it's just putting us in the position of having to rethink and um, kind of flesh out what, what we really mean when we're saying anything like homosexual or heterosexual, uh, active, passive, receptive, um, penetrating, right. and so on. Right. I think, Michael, by um, by positing this sort of, I guess it's sort of an ideal of genitality, right? Like, or the, uh, uh, by positing that within the realm of fluidity and of, of, you know, different identifications with, with mother and father, with uh, receptivity and sort of these phallic strivings. I think you really, I guess in a way, giving a, a, a different, a sort of a different ego ideal to psychoanalysis as well, right? If, if fluidity and these sort of different connections and identifications become, you know, sort of, I wouldn't say a benchmark for healthy development, but still a position that can be attained. Um, I guess we, it sort of also radically alters what we aim for in analysis, right? I mean, this whole ideal of the autonomous male goes out the window then. And I guess that's that's a pretty big deal for a profession. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I wonder if that still is an ideal even for our profession. Um, I mean, there are certainly many analysts who write about one of the goals of psychoanalytic treatment is a kind of uh, what I think inaccurately gets called a bisexualization process. Uh, I think it would be much more accurate to call it bigenderization uh, because in, in the psyche, uh, we're not talking about sexual object choice. We're, we're, we're talking about a, a, a sense of what we think of as related to gender. Uh, in other words, uh, much more fluid relationship between what we think of as the masculine aspects of the psyche and the, and the feminine aspects of the psyche. And so there's more of a fluidity between that. And I, I think we see that in, in, in treatment. Uh, often the phallic male in treatment, if in a successful treatment, uh, you know, has much more access to his, again, what culturally would be called the feminine within himself, can really move from what often is a paranoid schizoid position where he has to be penetrating the world or he will be penetrated by it to a, uh, uh, to a position of, you know, that the Kleinians would call a depressive position where there's real concern for the object uh, uh, in the world. And that's moving much more to a receptivity to one's own, uh, in this case, often uh, probably mischaracterizes depressive pain, but it's the pain of concern for an object. Um, and uh, that's an important part of, of development. And we also see in treatment for a man who, uh, some men who are terrified of their own phallic uh, uh, 
forays out into the world. Uh, maybe they're more aggressive, uh, penetrating ambition, desires in, the, in that sense, where there's what Ken Corbett calls a phallophobia for some boys and men that grow up. We often see through the treatment process that they can come to own more of their uh, phallic propensities in the service of uh, you know, connection, development, growth, and so on. And by the way, in reverse, if we use a slightly different language, we see the same thing for females in analysis, uh, where uh, often they're more active of what used used to be, again, mischaracterized as phallic aspects of the female, uh, can come more uh, to the fore the forefront for them in, in the psychoanalytic process and uh, their ambitions can be owned and uh, their angers and aggressions uh, can become part of their imp- an important way of developing in the world rather than turning against themselves suffering with depression and so on um, and you can you know carry that through so i think that that's a very important part and one of the points i think that you're uh, directing me towards which is very useful is how the analyst himself or herself uh, needs to be thought of in a, maybe in a slightly different way that both sides of uh, the, the so-called binary, which we all live in, but we're uh, not internally of, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I make the point I, I kind of cleverly, I suppose, too cleverly maybe, but say we all live in the binary, that's part of culture everywhere in the world, by the way, Uh, but we're not of the binary, the the psyche doesn't work that way, we're all a a conglomeration of aspects that, you know, can be in the cultural codes classified as masculine or feminine. So the analyst himself and herself uh, I'm suggesting, of course, needs to have a better sense of how they think about gender um, and uh, to kind of uh, be, be able to develop kind of both, both sides. I mean, some analysts have written very beautifully about um, kind of, the, you say, the masculine orientation to uh, psychoanalytic treatment and the feminine orientation, that they're, they're, they're both there, and uh, good analytic work, I think, really demands that we're able to oscillate in our work as we listen to our patients where they are and kind of bring out that side of ourselves that can be either more receptive and allow the reveries to take place, or more, uh, you might say, penetrating and uh, break through. Uh, the dyadic attachment to uh, surprise the patient and even sometimes disturb the patient with uh, insightful uh, interpretations. Right. And these qualities come out beautifully in the case uh, presentations, very rich case presentations, vignettes you have in the book. We unfortunately won't won't have time to get into them more deeply, but I guess it's something for the audience to discover themselves when reading the book and i hope i hope it will have a, a large um large audience this book uh, it's i think it's a great volume um so thanks thanks very much for writing uh, and and for talking to me about the book uh you were mentioning or, or rather i was mentioning in the beginning in the introduction that you have a new book coming out pretty soon you want to say a few things about that book 
Okay, well, it's a <laughs> it's a very different book. Uh, it, it's uh, it's uh, my attempt to try to deal with um, what's been happening, you know, really internationally across the world, uh, this rise of populism in a particular uh, way, and, uh, and the rise of uh, authoritarian uh, demagogues. But it's particularly taken part place here in, in the United States with the uh, appeal of Trumpism and the, the hold that it has on large segments of the American population and, uh, and certainly of the uh, politics of, uh, of the Republican side of the ledger in, in, in the U.S. So trying to understand that, um, I did a lot of um, research. My background is as a both a clinical psychologist and a social psychologist. So I brought in a lot of my uh, interest in social psychology, but also in politics and political science and history and so on to try to understand the group phenomena that are, that are taking place and how they take place, how uh, otherwise very rational people can be co-opted by conspiratorial thinking and, and, and so on. And so the, the book is an attempt to try to lay that out and, uh, and understand and hopefully offer some uh, ways of thinking about it that can uh, help us to contain uh, what I call the ruptures in, in, in American society. Right, great. That sounds very interesting. I might have uh, have to have you back on for for that book as well. <laughs> be happy so, to do so. Great. Thanks very much, Michael. Uh, we'll have to bring this to a close for a bit over the one hour mark by now. And I just wanted to let the audience know that if this discussion has been of interest to you, you might also want to check out our recent interview with Susan Schwartz about the absent father effect might touch on some of the issues we've raised today. So give that a listen as well. And I want to thank you very much again, Michael, for, for joining me today and for talking to me about uh, this marvelous book of yours, Masculinity and its Discontents, The Male Psyche and the Inherent Tensions of Maturing Manhood. Thanks very much, Michael. Thank you, Sebastian. My pleasure. <laughs>